And let's open up to the book of Ruth. And I want you to open up to the book of Ruth in chapter 1 of this great book. And for the next couple months, we are going to spend time looking at the redemption of Ruth. And in doing so, we are going to see how God is working out His uh, love story of redemption in our lives. As we looked in the last couple of weeks, we've seen how Ruth, um, how Ruth comes into the picture in our second week. We learn in week one that this man named Elimelech and his wife Naomi and their two sons, Malon and Kilion, live in a place called Bethlehem. And there's a famine in the city of Bethlehem. So they get up, pack everything up in a, in a, a camel U-Haul, and they head out to a place called Moab. And we heard that Moab is a place of great sin. It's a place of sexual immorality. It's a place of idol worship. And for ten plus years they spend uh, gathering themselves and living in a place called Moab. We learned a couple weeks ago that what happened was, was then what takes place is Malon and Kilion take two Moabite women to be their wives. Those wives' names were Ruth and Orpah. And what happens is, is they start living together and enjoying life together. And then the text tells us that Elimelech dies, Naomi's husband. And then during that time, both Malon and Kilion both die as well. We learned last week that uh, uh, Naomi hears that God is working in the hearts of his people and he's providing for the needs in Bethlehem. And what takes place? She says, we're heading back to Bethlehem. And last week we looked at three decisions that were made by three different women in regards to their decision, not only towards God, but the decision on what to do for the future. And our text brings us to verse 19 this morning. So I'm going to ask that you would stand for the reading of God's Word again as we look at the end of chapter 1. And this is what Ruth 1, verse 19 through 22 says. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them, and the women explained, Can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me, the Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth, the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. Let's pray for God's blessing on the Word. Father God, we come before You again as we open Your Word. Father, I pray that as You say, it would be living and active. And Father, it would change our lives this morning, that we would never be the same again because of what You've taught us today. In Jesus' name, Amen. You may be seated. Leonard Holt was an old-fashioned businessman. He had put in 19 years of hard work at the same Pennsylvania paper mill. When he wasn't on duty there as a lab technician, you could find him in his town leading a Boy Scout troop or spending time with his children or volunteering at the local fire department. Leonard was an active church member involved in all kinds of ministry, an all-around model citizen, the very embodiment of care and community. Everyone in the town admired Leonard. 
until the day that he stuffed two pistols into his coat pocket, drove to the mill, and walked through the plant, methodically gunning down friends and co-workers of long standing. Before the attack had run its bloody course, Leonard Holt had fired 30 deadly bullets and left a number of casualties. The community could only respond in shocked bewilderment and grief. Why would their church leader, their scoutmaster, their loyal neighbor, their friend do such a thing? If a man like Leonard Holt was capable of this, who then could be trusted? It took some time to begin to understand the complex puzzle of Leonard Holt's meltdown. Detectives, friends, and neighbors began reassembling the pieces of a life that bolstered a town before tearing it to pieces. As the people uh, of the town spoke, they asked what kind of demon had taken a hold of Leonard Holt. So they compared notes and put all the pieces together and they saw a picture that they that had been there all along. They simply had not seen it. There was something beneath all that hard work, all the neighborly smiles, all the volunteering. And what they found they did not like because they found the demon in Leonard's life. And the name of that demon was bitterness. The key puzzle was Leonard's job. In 19 years at the mill, he had always given his best, yet there were men beneath him who were always promoted before he was. Nobody had paid much attention to Leonard's feelings about that, but now many of the promoted men were the very ones who laid buried in a cemetery. Another piece of the puzzle was provided by Leonard's carpool. Of all things... Some co-workers had opted out of it because Leonard's driving was becoming reckless and dangerous. Now it seemed clear that something had been eating away at him for some time, and they watched it on the way to work and back home again. And in fact, probably all the hours in between. No one had suspected the demon of festering bitterness that had taken a hold of a man's soul. After all, Leonard Holt was just another face in the crowd. But that face would be immortalized on the pages of Time magazine because Leonard's face would appear on the cover of that incredible periodical. And under that was the caption, Beautiful, Benevolent, but Bitter. I don't know about you, but I wonder if there aren't some people here today who struggle with the demon of bitterness. Now, maybe you're not ready to go on some shooting rampage, and my goodness, I hope you're not this morning. But maybe you're struggling this morning because someone has said something, someone has done something to you, and it's beginning to fester, and it's beginning to make your blood boil. And you wonder why. You say, I'm mad, but I'm not sure why I'm so angry or so upset. Well, bitterness has been defined as the emotion which encompasses feelings of anger and hatred. It is often the feeling of resentment that is directed towards others for reasons of discrimination, neglect, jealousy, or trauma. Often bitterness comes as a result of a uh, bad experience that you have. Now, most people don't always find it that they have bitterness towards people. That happens. We can be bitter against our parents, bitter against uh, a co-worker or a boss. But many times it happens because of some struggle that we've had in our life. Now, every week I ask that God would show me a picture of what I'm going to teach on that Sunday. 
And I had the great luxury of being at Wrigley Field yesterday. And I saw a lot of bitter, bitter people. And I said, you know what? Thank you, Lord. Thank you for this object lesson in bitterness. And I think there's some people right now, frankly, that are a little bitter with me at this point in the sermon. And I'll hear about it as I get done. But again, it's amazing how it falls right into the text. I can't do anything about it. But for the last two weeks, we have learned about this woman named Naomi. Now, she is not the one that is the key figure in our book of Ruth. Of course, the book of Ruth is about this woman named Ruth. But the first chapter has Naomi at center stage. And we know that for the last decade, things have not gone well for this woman. And as we see her heading back to her homeland, heading back to where she first started when things were all moving and going well, we see three things that I want to pull out from this text that teach us about the road back from bitterness. And the first thing we see in our outlines is that the road back from bitterness involves moving beyond past hurts. Moving beyond past hurts. As one looks at the life of Naomi, you never see a time, the text doesn't tell us, that Naomi woke up one day and said, I am bitter. You know, hey, their oatmeal wasn't very good, therefore I am bitter. The house isn't clean, the camels aren't doing what they're supposed to, I'm bitter. We don't see that anywhere in the text. So we need to find out where it all began. But before we do that, I want to look at what happens in this element of bitterness in our own lives. And we'll get to Naomi in a second. Now, the Bible tells us a little bit about this emotion of bitterness. Not a lot, but enough that we can learn. In Proverbs 14, verse 10, it says, Each heart knows its own bitterness. Each heart knows its own bitterness. No one can know the level of bitterness that you have in your heart, the level of bitterness that you have in your life. Only you are aware of it. Now, we may see it. We may watch it being manifested, but we will never understand it like you do. Each heart knows its own bitterness. Now, the text tells us, the Bible tells us that within the fabric of every heart, there is a heart that is able to become bitter. Before you say, Tim, you know, bitterness is not one of those things that I struggle with. I, I, I easily forgive. I easily am able to look beyond past faults and past mistakes. Let me tell you, if you've got a human heart within you, you have a heart that is capable of being bitter and capable of becoming bitter. Now, we show bitterness in a lot of different ways. And there's a lot of different ways that we can become bitter. But we can all be bitter at one time or another now, the Bible says that when we allow this emotion to take place, something dramatic happens. Turn in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews for a moment. Put your hand in Ruth and turn all the way to the back of the Bible to the book of Hebrews. And I want to look at Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15 for a moment. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15. If you get to the book of Revelation, you went about five books too far and go back to your left to the book of Hebrews. And this is one of the famous passages. If you ever hear a message preached on bitterness, you're going to hear about this passage. And it's been used millions of times to teach the people of God not to be bitter. 
And this is what it says in Hebrews 12:15. See to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. Understand this. This is one of the only emotions that we see in the scripture. That what happens is, is that when we experience this emotion, what takes place is it doesn't just wreak havoc in our own lives, but it defiles many. So what happens is, is when you show bitterness and when you allow bitterness, you say, well, you know what? That's all right. That's my little pet sin, Tim. And it's, it's right inside and nobody can see it. The Bible says that when you are bitter, you're going to defile many around you. Now, the ironic thing is, is that the Bible never gives us a time to be bitter. The Bible says that in our anger, we should not sin. So there is a place for righteous anger or indignation on the part of a human being. But nowhere does the Bible say that, okay, you can be bitter. Just be careful that you don't sin in your bitterness. It says, rid yourself of all bitterness. It's not supposed to be evident in the lives of God's people. So what? What's ironic about that? What's ironic is is that we all struggle with this issue of bitterness. We all sit there and we become angry and things fester. And whether it was something that happened 10 years ago or something that happened yesterday, we allow that bitterness to grow. And it grows like a weed because it is the source is a root. It says the root of bitterness. And it grows and grows and grows. And while you're trying to water everything else in your life, just like a weed in the garden you've got right now, that weed grows without water, without fertilizer, without sun, that thing's shooting up. And that's what bitterness does. Now here's the ironic thing. God says we have no right to be bitter. But I look and I say there's one person that has the right to be bitter, and that's God. Think about it for a moment. God is all holy and all righteous. And he creates us as human beings. And he gives us everything we could ever ask for. And he says, here is this place, the Garden of Eden. Enjoy it. Eat, drink. Enjoy yourselves. Make lots of babies. Have fun. Just have a ball. And what do we do? We say, oh, but what about that one thing that we can't have? And we get hell-bent on that one thing. And we choose that one thing over God. Now, he had the right to be bitter. But not only was that Adam and Eve, but what happens is is we fall the prey to that every day. We say, instead of choosing God, I choose this. Instead of following God, I'm going to follow that. Instead of praising God, I'm going to curse God. Instead of loving God, I'm going to mock God. If anybody has the right to be bitter, it is our God in heaven. But nowhere in the scriptures do we ever see that God becomes bitter with us. And we think we have the right to be bitter. The only one who does is God, and he doesn't do it. What do we see in God? We see love. We see compassion. We see mercy. We see grace. We see wrath. We see justice. But within all that, even within the punishment of God and the wrath of God, there is no bitterness. He's not doing that because he's bitter against us. But the Bible says he does that in complete fairness and justice. And that even in that justice, his love is shown. And that's the amazing thing about God. He does not even show his wrath because he's bitter. And yet he has the right to do so. So if our God in heaven has the right to be bitter and chooses not to use that bitterness against us, how much more important it is for us as God's people, even though we can't do it and should not do it, that we not exhibit that emotion of bitterness in our lives. So we see the importance of being very careful. The 
Apostle Paul says, I'm sorry, the author of Hebrews says that where it is found is when, look at verse 15 again. This is the core, and I don't hear a lot of people talk about this when I've heard this text preached. I think they go right over it to get to bitterness. But look at what keeps us from bitterness. It says, see to it that no one misses the grace of God. What is the writer of Hebrews saying? What he's saying is if you're struggling with bitterness this morning, the antidote is simple. Don't miss out on the grace of God. What does that mean? God's unmerited favor to you as a sinner. What does that have to do with bitterness, Tim? What it means is we get bitter because someone has done us wrong. We become bitter because circumstances haven't worked out right. A biblical view of human beings would be that we don't deserve anything. We deserve death. And the grace of God came in and it showers us with love and mercy. And what do we see? We see that we deserve only wrath and justice and judgment. And what does God give us? He gives us love. He gives us compassion. He leads and guides like the good shepherd. So what does that teach us? If God allows grace and mercy to flow to me, a sinner who has blown it with him numerous times, how much should I show you, my brothers and sisters and my neighbor and that guy on the street who cuts me off on the Eisenhower Expressway or that uh, co-worker that always seems to make sure he gets this or that in the workplace? How much more should we show grace? The Christian who shows bitterness is one who has forgotten the grace that has saved him. And if you want to get away from bitterness, then pour yourself in, not to books that talk about bitterness, but pour yourself into the grace of God that has been shown to you. While we should have received a death sentence, Christ gave his son, while we were still sinners, to die for us. And as a result of that, he shows his love and compassion. And that's what God is calling us to do as well. The writer, uh, Apostle Paul, says in Ephesians 4.31, Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. You want bitterness to grow? It's not just going to stay in your heart. A lot of people say, well, I just, I just don't like this person, and I've got this grudge against this person. It's not going to stop there. It's going to come out in your mouth. It's going to come out in your actions. It's going to come out in how you deal with people. If you have bitterness towards your parents, you will never show them love because everything that you do will be filtered through that filter called bitterness. It will always show itself. The Bible says out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. You got bitterness in your heart? I can assure you of one thing. You will talk in a bitter way. So we understand this issue of bitterness. Now, why would we talk about all this? Because it's important as we look at a character, not to look and say, Naomi, why would she be bitter? But to ask the question, just like Naomi is bitter, so am I. And I struggle with bitterness. So I want to just list a couple things very quickly on why we become bitter. Write these down. The first thing is, is many people become bitter, first of all, towards God because of disasters. What I hear all the time is after events like 9-11, after the things like the tsunami, after uh, things like tornadoes and hurricanes, the question comes from the secular world and secular media, and they ask the question, what kind of God would allow something like this to happen? How many have heard that statement before? That's the first question that comes. Why would this loving God do it? And that's the bewildering thing to people that preach. Because what they hear us say is God is loving, God is caring, God wants to see none that, that none will perish, but that all will receive everlasting life. And we preach that. 
But then they see this disaster happen and they see children that lose their life and they say, how can God do that? And what they do, instead of bowing the knee to God and seeing the grace of God, they shake their fist at God and they say, if that's the kind of God you serve, I don't want nothing to do with him. I don't want any God that's going to allow natural disasters and allow calamity to fall on people. And so many people that I've shared the grace of God with say, I cannot get behind why God allows good or bad things to happen to good people. And they become bitter. And they say, if that's your God, take him. I don't want him. The next thing we see is it doesn't just involve disasters. It involves disappointment. Many of the counseling sessions that I've done in my short time as a pastor has been because there's been bitterness because of disappointment. Something hasn't worked out the way you've wanted it to. You thought finances were going to be at a certain place, and they haven't come through. And you say, well, God, you say you're going to meet my needs. Or uh, something happens where someone has let you down or someone has hurt you. I know that there are many people here who struggle with areas of abuse, whether it was from their childhood or even now after they go home, they have a husband or a wife or a mom or a dad that's abusing them. And this is a disappointment. They wanted nothing but love. And this is what they've gotten. And what happens is, is if we forget the grace of God, what transpires is, is that we become bitter. We become angry. And I will tell you, it destroys us as much as that abuse or that disappointment did in the first place. Thirdly, we see that it involves decisions that we made. Now, as you write down decisions, I, I like to talk about literature when I see a book that I've read. I wasn't much of a reader in school. But you know what bitterness does, especially when disappointment or a decision is made either by someone else or ourselves? If you've ever read the book Great Expectations by Charles Dickens, I I read it. I wish I would have read it now a little more carefully. But I remember a character named Miss Havisham. Remember Miss Havisham in the book Great Expectations? She's about to get married. She's got the wedding dress on. The food is all out on the tables. And ten minutes before the wedding is supposed to transpire, she gets a note from her groom saying, I'm not coming. In fact, I've run off with another woman. And what happens to Miss Havisham? If you remember the story, Dickens tells us that at that moment, at that place and that time, Miss Havisham is frozen in that moment of disappointment and the decision that was made for her. So what happens? Dickens tells us that she's wearing years later the same wedding dress and the moths and the rats are eating all the dress and the food and the cake is all moldy and everything. And what has happened? She has been frozen in her place where bitterness began. If you're struggling with bitterness today, understand that you're not forward thinking. You're not thinking about the future. If you have bitterness in your life, you are stuck in that moment just like Miss Havisham was. You're stuck in that time where that person hurt you or that abuse took place and you will never get beyond it until you give it over to God. Well, if there's a decision that has been made, I've heard that people have said, you know, if my parents would have only allowed me to go to this college or to date this person. I've heard people say that if my husband would only allow me to do this or my mom and dad would allow me to do that. And as a result of that, we say my life could have been so much better only if someone would have let me do what I wanted. And bitterness grows out of decisions that are made. Next we see uh, discipline. 
Now, this one is true for Christians. If you're still in the book of uh, Hebrews right now, I want you to look at Hebrews chapter 12. Because in verse 15, the author talks about bitterness. But what we don't see is the context. If you've got a study Bible, who's got a study Bible here? Allison, you got a study Bible? What do you have here for What does that say there? Say that real loud. Okay, who has a father's discipline or God's discipline as a heading somewhere around verse 3? You've got that? Let me tell you something. Christians become bitter. One of the reasons that Christians become bitter is because of discipline that God does in our lives. We sign up and some preacher gets up and he says, if you walk down the aisle and you say yes to Jesus, then you're going to enjoy life. Things are going to go well for you. And so you start living life. You never change the way you're living and you're still involved in the same sins that you were in the first place. And then all of a sudden some calamity starts taking place. And it seems that God is giving you a heavenly spanking. And what do people do? They say, ouch, that hurts. I don't like that kind of God. I don't like a God that tells me where I need to go and who I need to hang out with or what I need to do with my money or what to do with my time. I don't want a God like that. And there are many people who confess or who profess and confess to be believers who all of a sudden stop going to church and stop involving themselves with God's people. Why? Because it seems that God is trying to redirect them. And they say, I don't like that kind of God. I want a God that allows me to choose my own adventure. But I will tell you, that is not the God of the Bible. And God says, I will discipline those that I love. So what does he say? Don't become bitter. But a couple of verses beforehand, he says, strengthen your feeble knees and endure the discipline like a good son would. Discipline causes bitterness. So what is it about Naomi? Let's get back to Naomi for a moment. What is it that caused her bitterness? We see that none of the things that I've just shared caused her bitterness. But verse 3 and 4 tells us, uh, and 5, tell us what bitterness, where bitterness came from. Go back to the book of Ruth. We're going to sit there for the rest of the time. It says, now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about ten years, both Malon and Kilion also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. The point of her bitterness began when three of the closest men in her life died. So what's, the, what's it? Death caused her bitterness. Her bitterness was caused by death. I will tell you, when my brother passed away, it would have been easy to point our finger at God and say, we've served you, God. My parents were godly and still are godly people. And when they got the report that he had passed away, they could have pointed their finger at God and said, we're done. We're bitter. It's over. And there are some here who have lost a parent, who have lost a husband or a wife, who have lost someone close. And I will tell you, death allows us to become bitter so quickly and so easily. And it seems that now, after 10 years of living with a death stench in her home. She says, I want to get away. But what does it mean? It means moving beyond that. Now, Naomi, what she could have done is she could have sat there in Moab and just sat down and said, I am going to be bitter and I'm never going to go back. I'm never going to do anything for God. God has done nothing for me, so I'm just going to hang out with these ungodly people and call it a life. But what does the text say? It says she goes back to Bethlehem. The text says in verse 19 that uh, her and Ruth go back. We heard about that last week, that they head back 
to Bethlehem, and they go until they reach Bethlehem. I want to tell you something. You can never go halfway when it comes to bitterness. You can never just say, well, you know what? I'm heading towards getting out of bitterness, or I'm heading towards Bethlehem. I'm only going to go halfway, and we'll see how things go. She says, I hear that God is working in the hearts of his people and helping and providing for them, so what am I going to do? I'm going to go back there. And she makes her way back. What does she leave behind? She leaves behind her life that she had for 10 years. She leaves behind the graves of her two sons and her husband. And she says, I must move from this place in Moab where bitterness prevails. And I must find a place where bitterness will be set. I'll be set free once and for all. If you're struggling with bitterness today, the first step to get out of it is to move beyond that past hurt. What is frustrating you? What is causing you pain? You've got to move beyond it. The amazing thing is, as many times we don't know why we're angry in the first place. I thought about the story of the Hatfield and McCoy uh, feud that went on in West Virginia. They said dozens of family members died during generations of that feud. And historians and family got together and they wanted to know what caused this terrible feud. And after hours of spending comparing notes and remembering stories and looking at literature, they found the answer, and that was they have no idea what caused the feud. They said after all that, they had this big conference, and they brought everybody together. It was a festival. There was a guy out there cooking pork chops, and they're having a great time. And what happens? They get done, and they say, this big feud of bitterness, we don't know why it happened. Can I tell you something? I believe that's true of many of the things that we hold bitter in our lives. We don't know why we're bitter anymore. All we know is that person sitting across the way in our church, we can't stand them. We want them dead. We don't want nothing to do with them. And someone would say, but why? I don't know. I I used to be mad at him. I I don't know. What was it that began? Let me tell you something. What I've learned as a leader in a church and dealing with, especially mediating, many times people that are mad at each other, they're never able to articulate why they were mad in the first place. Just some hurt, some body language, something that was said in jest, and they've held it and contained it and never moved beyond it. And that's what happens. We don't know why we are bitter. Well, what's the second thing we need to understand? The second thing we need to understand is that the road back from bitterness involves a personal homecoming. It involves a personal homecoming. Now, this is critical. If you want to get beyond bitterness, you have to do what Naomi did. Naomi leaves the place of bitterness and heads to a place where she remembers that things were better. She says, all right, I moved to Moab, and everything went to hell. It's terrible. I can't believe my life has turned out this way. And if you're really honest with God, you're going to find out that's probably sometimes in your life how you talk. You say, I can't believe God is allowing this to happen. What went wrong? Where did we turn the wrong way and find ourselves in a mess like this? She finds herself dying in Moab because of what has taken place. So what does she do? She remembers and says, oh, someone just told me that God is providing for his people in Bethlehem. You know, when I remember Bethlehem, I remember my two boys. I remember walking through the streets of Bethlehem. I remember hanging out with the bridge club of women and enjoying bunco and other things with the ladies and hanging out. And it was great and it was wonderful. And we used to get together and have uh, play dates. We used to double date with the guy down the street with his wife. I remember those days and those were good days. 
I want you to think back. Whatever you're bitter about this morning, think back to before you were bitter. And ask the question, where was I at before that bitterness began? Naomi, it was Bethlehem. And so what she says is, I'm heading back. Of course, we know Orpah decides to stay in Moab. Ruth says, I'll go with you. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. And she heads back. And she finds herself in a place called Bethlehem. Now, I want to look very quickly, just a couple moments, about this place called Bethlehem. And I want to pull out a couple things about this place. Because I think it's important for us as people and as a church to understand what Bethlehem is all about. The first thing we see about Bethlehem is that Bethlehem was a place known for God's praise. It was a place known for God's praise. Now, as they are heading to Bethlehem, if you were to look at a map, you would see that they would have to go uphill. If you had a topographical map, you would have to go uphill about 3,000 feet to the foothills of Judah, where Bethlehem was at. I think it's kind of ironic that the road back from Moab to Bethlehem, the road back from bitterness to being able to be content and to have love and to understand what God is doing. For Naomi was an uphill road, full of rocks and full of all kinds of difficulties. Let me tell you something. This is easy to preach. It is hard to live because the road back from bitterness is an uphill walk, and it's a difficult one. It was about 50 miles. It would have taken them uh, double the time to head back to Bethlehem as it did to head to Moab in the first place. What would be a seven-day journey for women by foot to go to Moab would be a 14-day journey, they said, because of all the rocks and the passes that those women would have, women would have had to have gone through. How ironic it is that it's so easy to fall to bitterness, it's twice as hard to get out. I don't know if you see that as ironic. I think it is. But we see that that major journey, that difficult journey, leads her to a place of praise. Now, how is it a place of praise? Bethlehem is in the province of Judah. Judah means God is to be praised. God is to be praised. Wouldn't it be great if the land we live in means God is to be praised? Naomi goes to a place, from a place, first of all, Moab, that is known for idol worship, sexual immorality. She goes from that place to a place that is known for the praises of God. God is to be praised. Next we see, not only is it a place that God is praised, but we see that it involves God's presence. Look at verse 6. When she heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for him, for them, Naomi and her, uh, sorry, Naomi and her daughter-in-law's, daughters-in-law, prepared to return home from there. Now, Judah had a name, but not only did it have a name, you know, Hinkley, where I'm from, uh, is known for the first game of the Harlem Globetrotters that they ever played. That's our claim to fame. We're pretty pathetic, and we just live by that. All right? So we have something to our name, a claim to fame. That's what Judah had. But not only did it have a claim to fame, but in the here and the now, God was providing There was God's presence in that place. And what Naomi hears is she hears that God has come to the aid of his people. There's presence. Next we see that there's a provision. It's a place known for God's provision. Bethlehem was known as the house of bread. It would be similar to calling Nebraska the great bread basket of our nation. 
Now, why would Bethlehem be called the house of bread? Historians believe that the barley and the wheat harvest that came from Bethlehem was one of the greatest in all of the province of Judah. And so what they said at this place, man, it will never run out of bread. And we talked about the irony that the house of bread had a famine in it ten years beforehand. And how God's judgment had taken away the, name, the claim to fame that Bethlehem had. And it took it away. But it was known for God's provision. It was a house of bread. But, you know, you look at a name, you look at the significance of where this place is at. But I will tell you, you learn more about a town from its people. Look at what it says in verse 19. In verse 19, it says that when Naomi and Ruth head to Bethlehem, the response by the Bethlehemites or the people of Bethlehem is this. It says the whole town was stirred. What does it mean that the whole town was stirred? I think it's kind of funny that the word in the Hebrew has the root word hum. The root word hum. So what it means in our English is that the Bethlehem was humming with excitement. Here they see Naomi come back. And the question it says is that the women ask, you know, of course the women are always wanting to know what's going on. And they ask the question, is this really Naomi? Can it be her? Now, why would they ask that? Well, 10 years, of course, is going to age anyone. We're going to look a little different than we did 10 years ago. But add on that a difficult journey back to Bethlehem. Add the grief of losing three of her closest family members. And you've got an individual, Naomi, who looks pretty different than she did at first. And it says they were excited. The people of God were excited to have one of them back. Now, how, you would say, Tim, this point is weak. You needed a three-point sermon, and you just said, let's talk about Bethlehem for a while. Here's the application. Every Sunday, people walk into this place full of bitterness. Now, I'm not saying every visitor we have is a bitter person, but we all got skeletons in the closet, and we all got issues. Now, the question is, when visitors walk in and when people outside our doors listen and hear about what's going on, do they say of Village Bible Church, we're a people of praise, we're a people that are experiencing God's presence, we're a people that God provides for, and that we are a people that are pursuing even those that struggle with baggage in their life. Are we a Bethlehem in the land of Judah around us? Are we known for that type of life? Are we known to be that type of people? My prayer and the elders' prayer is that you as a congregation would rally around people. Not just people that look like they've got everything all put together. Because I'll tell you something, many times the people that look most put together are the ones that are most broken up. And those that wear nice clothes and wear the designer labels and drive a nice car are the ones that are many times struggling more than anyone else. And the question is, this church will only continue to grow and grow the way God wants it to is if we pursue those people that struggle. Naomi comes back. Look at her explanation of what has happened. The first words out of her mouth is she says, don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant and lovely. She says, stop calling me that. I am Mara, which means bitter. So think about someone walking in and one of our greeters comes in. Good morning. Welcome to Village Robinson. Oh, your name is Tim. Don't call me Tim. I am bitter. What would be your response? What do you think the response of those women? Whoa. Get her a cup of coffee. 
Something's not right. She's bitter. She's mad. And she makes it clear to everybody exactly how she feels. You know someone who's like that? Do you have a Mara in your life? Maybe you're married to a Mara. Good morning, dear. I'm bitter. Don't talk to me. Maybe your parents are a Mara. Hey, Mom and Dad, can I have 20? Don't you dare ask me for 20 bucks. I give you all the money that I have. Who do you think you are? I made one of you. I can make another one of you. I'll take you into this world. I'll take you out. You know, you got one of those kind of parents. Bitter. Don't answer that, teenagers. Maybe your boss is a Mara. Whatever it is, do you have a Mara in your life? There are some Maras here in our church. I love you. Because you're by far the most honest of all people. She comes out and she breaks her heart open to everybody. You have one of those in your small group? The one that comes in and as a small group, you say, all right, are there any prayer requests? And everyone's quiet and there's Mara. Yes, I have one. I have, no, two, three, four, five. I have 14. My life stinks. My husband's a jerk. My boss is a jerk. My kids are a bunch of hooligans. Everything I want to do, it doesn't work out, and I am bitter. And you say, well, we're going to get to our Bible study. Well, I hope it's about bitterness, because I'm bitter. And that's what Mara does. She says, I'm not pleasant. I'm not lovely. I'm bitter. But she goes back, and this is the great thing. Where does she find herself amongst the people of God, the Israelites? The best place for bitter people to be is amongst us. We don't want bitter people out in the world. We want bitter people to come and to be a part of the people of God. So as a people of God here in this place, I exhort you to love bitter Maras that walk into this place. Bitter Maras that have been in this place for many years. Don't ask God to make them leave. Ask God to allow us to be a people that loves them and listens to them. Not only a personal homecoming, but finally the thing that we see is that bitterness involves a proper humility. A proper humility. What we see happen is Mara begins to just share her heart. She says, my life is terrible. I was here ten years ago and I was a part of the... Uh, Rotary Club, and I was a part of this, and we had all those great times. My, my husband, Elimelech, man, he was a part of the fire station, and man, we just had a great time. I was full when I left. I had a husband, I had two sons, things were great. I go to this place called Moab, and everything falls apart. And all I've got left is a daughter-in-law who doesn't want to go back home, and I'm not sure why she's with me, but she's here, okay? And you, you look at the response, they're not sure what to make of this Ruth. They're like, Ruth, the daughter-in-law, came with her. Okay, it's just kind of added there. And that's all I've got. I'm bitter because I'm empty. Many of you are bitter here this morning because at one point you were full, but now you're empty. One of the leading elements of bitterness that I didn't talk about was money. Many of us are bitter because we used to have money. And because of circumstances, because of disappointments, because of bad decisions or, or right decisions that just didn't work out the way we wanted them to, there's no money left. And we say, I was full, but now I'm empty. And God is a mean God. Look at what it says about her bitterness. I want you to understand this. It is so critical that we see why this bitterness is involved in her life. It is to teach her humility. 
Instead of pursuing humility, she chooses the road of bitterness for a while, but she goes back, and what brings her back? Listen to what brings her back. Look at verse 6. I go back to that. It says that she sees that God has provided for his people. You know what brings bitter people back? It's not bitter people one day saying, I'm tired of being bitter. I guess guess I'll go to church. I'm tired of being bitter. Even though God hasn't helped me and God hasn't taken care of me, You know, I'm just going to go and be a part of God's people. What brings bitter people back to God and back to the people of God is that they see how God is blessing others. If you're bitter, and I've been bitter before, and I've had seasons of bitterness in my life, the last thing I see is the blessing of God in my life. Why? Because the glass is half empty. No matter what transpires in my life, that glass will never be the full glass that God says that is pouring over. So what transpires? We say, well, God's not doing anything for me. But what do bitter people see? Bitter people see how God is blessing those around them. Why? Because we hunger for it so much. We desire for it to be involved in our lives. And what happens? We see that the Johnsons next door to us that are Christians and go to our church, well, God's blessing them. What brings Naomi back to Bethlehem? She sees and hears that God is at work with his people. That's why it's so important when I tell you that make fellowship not just about ball games and not just about work, but to make it about your bless, the blessing that God is having in your life. Why? Because that word or testimony by you to a fellow brother or sister may be the words that brings that person out of bitterness and back to God. The next thing we see is it doesn't just involve how God brought her back but it also involves how God broke her down or breaks us down. So it involves bringing us back, but it also involves breaking us down. Now you say, that doesn't sound very nice. Let me tell you something, and I want to make this abundantly clear. God is in the business of breaking his people down. I hope you heard me right. God is at work in our lives Because he wants to break us down. He wants to be the potter and we are the clay. And he begins to mold us and shape us and change who we are so that we will be the people that God wants us to be. How does God break her down? There's a couple things. Look at what it says. It says that God has afflicted me. God has brought um, calamity upon me. And God has afflicted calamity and... He's brought misfortune. Is that what it was? Brought misfortune. I'm lost in my notes, so I'm going off my head right now. It's the first time it's ever happened. Misfortune in his life. So what, what does she say? God, God, God. Do you hear the devil? I don't hear anything about the devil. Do you hear anything about other people? Mm-mm. That's gutsy for this woman. She comes back and she says, let me tell you something. I left here full. I went full to Moab. I come back empty. And let me tell you, just make it abundantly clear. Whose fault is it? Uh Uh-huh. It's his fault. He's been very, very difficult and very hard on me. And I'm bitter. He's dealt with me harshly, one of the translations says. He's testified against me. The, The picture there is literally that he is a witness in a courtroom scene and that he is witnessing against you as a defendant. What Naomi is saying is his God is on the witness stand and he has said, yep, she deserves that. Yep, that's what it is. 
She's, she needs to have that happen in her life. And it says that she's brought calamity, brought misfortune. We don't think that very often, do we? As Christians, we say if something bad happens, the devil's fault. Let me tell you something. More times than not, we don't see in the Bible that the devil brought calamity, but that God does. And what we need to understand as Christians is God is not just this celestial Santa Claus, but He is a God that brings calamity into our lives to break us down. One of the greatest times in my life was the greatest hell that I ever lived. And God brought me to this place of greatest depression in my life. And for months, I could not shake it. And I was a skeleton. I just, man, I just went through life. And, and just, you know, people would say, well, Tim's a little different. He doesn't laugh like he used to. And, and what was God doing? God was breaking your teaching pastor down. And he was saying, you know what? There's a little too much of Tim in this. There's a little too much of Tim's pride in this. I'm going to knock him down. Why? Not because God says, I don't like Tim. I want to give Tim a piece of my mind. He says, I'm doing this because out of it, Tim will be a better person as a result. And maybe right now, God's breaking you down. And you want to point your fist at God. And you want to say that. And you know what I would tell you? Tell him that. Tell God, God, why is this happening? Why are you doing this? Ask God those questions. He knows you're asking them already. Articulate them and say, God, why? And in doing so, but understand this, that when Mara, Naomi, says all these things, you know what she does? Each time she speaks of a title of God. In your Bibles, you will see the word Almighty. The word Almighty is the Hebrew name for God, El Shaddai. You know, it's amazing, even though she points her finger at God and says that God has been very mean to her, she praises God by saying, God, you're almighty, you're all powerful. In your times, as God is breaking you down, understand this, he knows how far you can bend. He knows how far before you'll break. And point your finger at God and say, God, this is what's going on in my life. And I wish Village Bible Church would be a church that would do a lot more of that, that would be honest with God's people and say, my life really stinks right now. I've got a daughter that's pregnant. I've got a son that's going and wreaking havoc. My marriage is terrible. We are bouncing checks all over the place because we have a house that we can't afford and we're buying things we can't do. And, and I really, I gotta blame God on this one. I wish we had small groups that were really like that. Would really, and I know there's some that are, but, but what do we say? You know, everything's going great. My husband and I were wonderful. I love him. You know, my kids, they're great. They're studying the Bible every day. You know, oh, we got, oh, yeah, and we're given to the church, and it's, it's wonderful, and this is great. And we, we're just lying through our teeth. And we go home, we get in our cars, and what happens? We start yelling and screaming. You know, you fell asleep during church, and, you know, did you see how so-and-so looked at us? You know, they know something's going on. And we become bitter. Articulate, be honest like Naomi was, but always say, God, you're, you're all-powerful. God, you're almighty. She says, Lord, which is the word uh, Adonai, which is the idea that God is sovereign. He's in control. She never says her life is out of control. She says it's going just as God wanted it to. And she says he's brought calamity and misfortune to bring me down. One final thing we see is that the road back from bitterness involves a proper humility that teaches us how God blesses us again. Let me close with this. What happens is at the end of verse 22, 
22, yes, is at the end of the chapter 22, we see that what transpires is the author gives kind of a closing thing. The dialogue's over. Mara has spoken her piece, and it says that her and Ruth go back to Bethlehem, and the last phrase in the chapter is that it was the beginning of the barley harvest. Seems kind of out of line. Here you have this woman going off on God to all these people, and the author kind of closes it on and says, and by the way, barley harvest had begun. Seems odd. Commentators tell us that this is a literary device to close out a piece of literature to say that the bad days are over. You know, chapter 1 is all bad. And maybe right now you are living in a place of chapter 1. Not bankruptcy, but chapter 1 of Ruth. And you're tired of life. Let me tell you something. If you're a child of God here this morning, right at the end where you feel like you're ready to give up, the writer says the beginning of barley harvest was beginning. That was a time of great jubilation, great excitement, just a joyous occasion. And what is it saying? Chapter 1 may have been hard, but if you look at chapters 2, 3, and 4, Naomi's life is completely different. Can I tell you, this is a fairy tale ending when you get to Ruth chapter 4. And Ruth 1 is really bad. But if you're a child of God, let me tell you something. And you remember this in your times of bitterness, in your times of sorrow. These words, if you are a child of God, the best is yet to come. And if you trust God in that and you say, God, I don't understand why you're doing this and it's been very difficult. But God, you say the best is yet to come. The Bible says, no eye has seen, no ear has hear, heard what God is doing to prepare for his people. We don't have a clue and it's going to be wonderful. And if we're faithful, God says that we will see that one day. Get beyond your bitterness and give it to God and let God move in your heart. Let him break you down so that you can be the person that God wants you to be. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you for what it's taught me. And Father, I pray for that person today here that is struggling with bitterness or anger or struggle. Father, I pray that you would move in their heart, that you would challenge them to move back to the people of God, to move back to where you are working. Father, I pray that when we get there, that we would be open and honest with the people of God. Father, that this place would be a place of honesty in our struggles and our sins and that we would be confessing sins one to another and would not say, I'm all right, you're all right, we're all all right, God, because we're not all right. So, Lord, I pray we'd be honest. And, Lord, I pray that you would humble us, that we would see your humbling work within us. And, Father, that in doing so, we would become like your Son, Jesus. And in doing so, we would be a church that gives you more glory, that we would be a people that give more glory to you, and that we would be a people that no longer deal with bitterness. Lord, allow that to leave this place once and for all, so that we can be a place that cries out to you, in love and says, you give and you take away. You give and you take away. But my heart and my mouth are here to say, blessed be your name. 
Let that be the words of our hearts this morning. The cry of our heart. So that you will be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen.